following sermon, entitled The Holy One Not Left in the Grave, was preached on the evening of January 22, 2023, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, we will read the whole chapter. Especially verse 10 is relevant for tonight's sermon in which we consider Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's begin by reading Psalm 16. This is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. Preserve me, O God, for in Thee do I put my trust. O my soul, Thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to Thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. As far as we read God's Word, it's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 17 found in the back of our songbooks on page 10. Lord's Day 17. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death, that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He had purchased for us by His death. Secondly, we are also by His power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. In God's providence, it has been several weeks since the last time we had a sermon on a Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. Therefore, it's appropriate that we remind ourselves of the context. In our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we are in the section that explains to us the Apostles' Creed as the content of our faith. And the Catechism is walking through the Apostles' Creed line by line, explaining the significance of each phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Within the Apostles' Creed, we are in that subsection that treats the Son of God. That is, we are in the section on Christology. 
And within that section, we've already treated the Lord's days that concern the principal names, that is, the primary names of our Savior, Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, and Lord. Still within the overall section on the Son of God, within the Apostles' Creed, we are now going through His saving work from His incarnation all the way until He comes again to judge the living and the dead. Thus far, we have treated what we call in Reformed theology His state of humiliation. That is, we have considered His lowly birth, His suffering under Pontius Pilate, His death, His crucifixion, His burial, and His descent into hell. All of that was His state of humiliation. And Lord's Day 17 marks a transition in that we are now finished with His state of humiliation and we begin His state of exaltation. His state of glorification which was given to Him as a due reward for His perfect obedience even unto death. Lord's Day 17 and the truth of the resurrection is the beginning of that aspect of Christ's saving work. But now what's interesting about this particular Lord's Day is that it does not really focus on the resurrection itself. That comes out in the very language of the question. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? It does not ask what is the meaning of the resurrection or can you prove the resurrection? Those things are important. And we will certainly make sure that we have a clear understanding of what do we mean by the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the course of the sermon. But yet, following the lead of the catechism, part of the focus of the sermon will be on the profit of it, the value of it for God's children. But at the same time, we want to do justice to the passage that we have read. For Psalm 16 is a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that it prophesies that God's Holy One would not be left in the grave. And it teaches us that Christ's resurrection therefore happened as the fulfillment of prophecy. And so with those things in mind, we will consider tonight Lord's Day 17 using as our theme the Holy One not left in the grave. First, we'll look at the prophecy of Christ's resurrection. And then secondly, at the prophet of Christ's resurrection. So the first point focusing on Psalm 16. The second point focusing more on the language of question answer 45. The Holy One not left in the grave. First, the prophecy of Christ's resurrection. Second, the prophet of Christ's resurrection. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and His saving work. And what's notable for tonight's sermon is that there are prophecies not only concerning His suffering and His death, but also His resurrection. And that's what we have in Psalm 16 in particular. Verse 10. Verse 10 we read, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. That this is prophetic of Jesus Christ is made explicit in the New Testament. Two times in the book of Acts, 
Psalm 16, verse 10 is quoted and applied directly to Jesus Christ and His resurrection. The first of these is in Acts 2, verses 24-31. through 31. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. He's explaining what has taken place there on that day. And he says about Jesus Christ, whom God, this is verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, and now Peter, by inspiration, quotes Psalm 16, several verses from it. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made me to know the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And that's the end of Peter quoting from Psalm 16. And then he says, immediately after quoting, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's saying, look, we could go to the place here in Jerusalem and see the the grave, the tomb of David, and everyone knows that his body is in there. Continuing on, verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, that is, David was acting as a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Peter, by inspiration, takes Psalm 16, verse 10, and explicitly teaches that it is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see the same thing in Acts 13. Acts chapter 13, this is the Apostle Paul preaching on the mission field. And there we read in verse 34, and as concerning that he raised him, Jesus, up from the dead, now more, now no more to return to corruption, he said of this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, that is, he quotes another passage, and here's Psalm 16, verse 10 again, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, that is Christ, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. He's saying, look, David's body was buried and his body was left there. It, it did see corruption. And therefore, David could not have been talking about himself. He was talking about another, that is Jesus Christ. Though he was buried, nevertheless was not permitted to see corruption. And from these two passages in the book of Acts, it's crystal clear that Psalm 16 as a whole, and especially the end, is prophetic of Christ and specifically of His resurrection. So that if we go back to the specific language of the psalm, we read in verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, 
neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And now, David, by inspiration, is putting words into the mouth of our Savior so that our Savior is the one who's saying, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And when we hear the term soul, we typically think of the spiritual, immaterial part of us. And this Old Testament word for soul can refer to that, but it can also refer more broadly just to the life of man because it comes from the verb that means to breathe and is often used with reference to the life of a man or to man himself so that the idea is my life is not going to be left. And then he says, in hell. Now when we hear the term hell, we think of the, the place called hell. That is, the place of judgment, of everlasting fire. But again, this specific word that's used in Psalm 16, verse 10 can refer to that, but it can refer Really, it refers more broadly to the realm of the dead, the abiding place of the dead. The Hebrew word here you've perhaps heard is the Hebrew word shoal. And it can refer to hell in the way we think about it, but it can also refer to the grave, the tomb. And that's the idea here. So that David is putting into the mouth of our Savior that God would not leave His life in the grave. And then he adds, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That is, his body would not be allowed to undergo the normal process of decay in which it rots and returns to dust. And all this is about our Savior. He is the holy one here. And this is a prophecy of his resurrection. And now implied in this is that he would indeed be he would indeed die and be buried because the language is that thou wilt not leave my soul, my life in the grave. Which means, implies, it did go there, but it's not left there. So that this is a prophecy of Christ's resurrection. And what is noteworthy, this is not the only Old Testament passage that is prophetic of this event in Christ's life. There are others. For example, Psalm 53, verse 10. Psalm 53, verse 10. For it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This passage teaches us about the Messiah that after he has been made a sin offering, God Himself would prolong His days, indicating He would raise Him up from the dead. Similar prophecy in Hosea 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, this is Jehovah speaking, Messiah speaking, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. And this finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who says to the grave, I will be thy destruction. Christ would destroy the power of the grave by rising again from the dead and thereby making it so that the grave has no victory. In addition, there's an Old Testament type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Jonah. And we know that because Christ Himself in Matthew 12, verse 39, said of Jonah, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's well's belly, 
so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is, for Jonah to go into the belly of that great fish, be there for three days, and then emerge, be given new life as it were, was a type, a shadow of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So multiple prophecies. And now what's notable is the impact that this had on Christ Himself. For you see, Jesus Christ was well aware of these prophecies. For Jesus Christ is one who knew the Old Testament Scriptures. The one event that we have of His childhood is Him going to the Old Testament to study God's Word, to learn from the learned men there in Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ therefore knew the Old Testament Scriptures and He knew these particular prophecies. And He Himself would reiterate them. He Himself would foretell of His resurrection. He did that, for example, just after He cleansed the temple. The people asked, show us a sign whereby you have the the authority to do such a thing. And Jesus' response was to say in John 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And verse 21 tells us He spake of the temple of His body. He was speaking of His resurrection. This is something He told His disciples multiple times on their final trip to Jerusalem. He was telling them what's going to happen when they get there. And He would tell them what He does in Matthew 17. The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men and they shall kill Him. And the third day He shall be raised again. So Christ knew these prophecies. Christ reiterated these prophecies. But more than that, Did you know that Jesus Christ Himself hoped in them? That He derived encouragement from them? That's the testimony of Psalm 16. We have already established that Psalm 16 is prophetic of Jesus Christ. These are the words of Jesus Christ being put into His mouth by David who is acting as a prophet. And now when we take verse 10 in its context, we see that this was a matter of encouragement for our Savior. Verses 8 and following, we read this. These are the words of our Savior, remember. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoiceth. And note this. My flesh also shall rest in Hope. How can you say that? Why is your flesh going to rest in hope? Because of verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. And what this is teaching us is that the prospect of the resurrection was for Christ a source of hope and encouragement as He faced the prospect of His death. For you see, the the prospect of dying, the prospect of enduring the wrath of God, that was something that Christ, according to His human nature, looked up against. We see that in the garden. 
when he's praying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass. But yet our Savior went. Willingly. Voluntarily. And a part of the reason was this encouragement that though He must lay down His life, though He must give Himself as a sin offering, nevertheless, God would not leave His soul in hell. He would be raised again from the dead. And in fact, this was a part of the encouragement that He was given on the Mount of Transfiguration. When His body was changed temporarily into that glorified form, well, He was given, being given a foretaste of His resurrection, His glorified body. The body that He would have after He had laid down His life and had been raised again on the third day. And that was encouragement for our Savior to continue on that difficult path leading to Calvary. So that we see that Psalm 16 and these other prophecies were not just foretelling what would happen, but they were a part of the encouragement for our Savior to go that difficult way. He went to the cross. He laid down His life. He allowed His body to be laid in a grave because He had the hope that it would be raised up again. And he was not disappointed. Because he did, again, he did indeed arise again on the third day. That's the clear testimony of Scripture and that's the central truth in Lord's Day 17. And although Lord's Day 17 focuses on the profit of His resurrection, we still have to talk about the, the meaning, the idea of His resurrection. And we have to be very specific as to what we mean by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we speak that way, we are saying that the soul of Jesus Christ returned to His body that had been dead in the grave for three days. And that when His soul and body were reunited and His body had been made alive again, He then emerged from that grave. And that this was the same body that had been crucified. Yes, it's now a glorified body. It's been transformed. But as to the identity of this body, we're still talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The one who's very God and very man. That's why He could show the disciples the scars of His crucifixion. This is why He could say in Luke 24, verse 39, Behold My hands and My feet, that it is I Myself handle Me and see. Now we make a point of stating very clearly what we mean by the resurrection because there are those in the broader church world who deny this. The broader church world, there are those who say, look, we have the means of modern science. We know now that people who died do not simply just get up and live again. It's impossible. And therefore, they would say, 
When we read these accounts of Jesus rising again from the dead, we cannot take that as literally historically true. And then if you'd ask them, well then, what then do those passages mean? You have to see that the Bible clearly speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would affirm that language, but they give to it an entirely different meaning. So that for liberal Christianity, the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that Jesus lives on in other people through His teachings. That is, the idea that the ideas that Jesus Christ stood for are alive and well. He lives in that sense. But the problem is when you define the resurrection of Jesus Christ that way, well then it applies to many people. You could say that Karl Marx is risen in that sense. That he lives through other people or in other people through his teachings. But that's not at all the biblical idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth of Scripture is that He being dead was made alive again. His body and soul reunited together. That's the truth of the resurrection. And now concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are two truths that we want to note about it. First, as has already been implied, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's stated explicitly in a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, where Paul says, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is, according to those Old Testament promises. So that we can take the, the language of those promises those prophecies, and apply them directly to Jesus Christ. So that having given Himself as a sin offering for His people, His days were prolonged by emerging from the grave. He became grave's destruction so that it has no victory and so on. But now in this connection, we can note that this is a large part of the reason why Jesus arose on the third day. Not on the first. Not on the second. Not on the fourth. Not on the fifth. But on the third day. In part to fulfill that Old Testament type. Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of that great fish three days and three nights. And therefore our Savior to fulfill that type was in the grave for parts of three days. But this is also the fulfillment of Psalm 16, verse 10. In the second half of the verse where we read, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. That is, His body would not be allowed to go through the process of decay and return to dust. And that's why three days. He had to be in the grave long enough that there was no doubt that he was actually dead. There could be no doubt that he was just faking it and that the disciples and Jesus had pulled a fast one on Pontius Pilate. So he did not arise the first day 
or the second, but on the third day, but not on the fourth, fifth, or sixth because His body was not allowed to see corruption. That underscores the truth that Jesus Christ's resurrection was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That first of all. Second, we need to see that Christ's resurrection was a part of His exaltation. And that comes out from the historical context as well as the context in the Apostles' Creed. For you see, Jesus Christ made perfect satisfaction for all of our sin and guilt. So that there are no remnants, no vestiges of sin that are still clinging to Jesus Christ. And this is true not only of Christ personally, individually, but more importantly, as Christ as our head, as our representative. And because that's true, death could no longer hold on to Him. For you see, the wages of sin is death. Where you have sin, there's going to be death. But now in this case, Christ has made perfect, full, complete satisfaction. There is no more sin, and therefore, there cannot be any death. And since Jesus Christ had paid the debt, His state of humiliation was finished. He no longer stood before Jehovah God as guilty on account of our sins imputed to Him. But as our head and representative, He stood before God as one who is righteous. Therefore, He was given life. He was exalted. He's glorified. There's significance for Christ Himself. Yes, we're about to come to the, the prophet for us, but we must not fail to see that this serves the glory, the exaltation of our Savior. That's, that's what's on the foreground. That's what's primary. Because it's all about the glory of our Savior. That's God's primary purpose. That His Son would be exalted above all so that He might be worshipped, so that all men might praise Him as the one who was able to lay down His life and to take it up again. This is a part of His exaltation. But now having made that point, we need to do justice to the language of the Catechism which underscores the profit of Christ's resurrection for us as well. Question 45 asks, what doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? From a general point of view, the profit is this. That He is now able to make us partakers of the blessings He has purchased for us. It's where the catechism begins in its answer. First, by His resurrection, He overcame death. That He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He had purchased for us by His death. Notice, He made a purchase by His death. That's a part of Christ's saving work which the Reformers called His merit. Christ earned. He procured. He obtained the blessings of salvation by His death. 
For in His death, He was doing the will of the Father. And that includes the will of the Father from a general point of view. That is, His obedience to the Ten Commandments that every one of us is called to render under our God. But more than that, when Scripture speaks of Christ performing the will of the Father, it's broader than just that He kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, but there are specific aspects of the will of God that were designated for Christ Himself. That is, there was work set aside for the Mediator, such as being obedient even unto death. And because Christ performed the will of God and was obedient unto death, He thereby purchased, He thereby merited the blessings of salvation. Now, having done that, by His resurrection, He's able to make us partakers. The Catechism says, by His resurrection, He overcame death that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He had purchased for us by His death. That is, His saving work is more than just the the purchasing, the meriting, but there's what the Reformers called the efficacy of His work. That is, the, the applying of those blessings, the bestowing of those blessings, the conferring of them upon His people. And that work is equally as important. And what Lord's Day 17 is teaching us is that unless Christ had risen from, has been, rose again from the dead, He would not have been able to confer those blessings. And I think an illustration in this regard is helpful for us. Think of the illustration of a merchant who is sent overseas. That merchant might very well get across the seas, travel from place to place, do all the trading that he set out to accomplish, and in the end, obtain many expensive, valuable treasures so that his ship is now filled up with all these treasures. But though he has been successful in that, if that merchant does not make it back across the sea or back across the ocean to deliver those goods, then they're of no value whatsoever. They profit absolutely no one if his ship gets caught in a storm and is sunk down to the depths of the sea. He has to make it back to deliver the goods. So it is with our Savior. By His death, He obtained, He procured, He earned, He merited all of the blessings of salvation. And in light of His saving work, we read what we do, for example, in Colossians 1, verse 9, for it pleased the Father that in Him, that is in Christ, should all fullness dwell. That is, Christ is full of blessings. The blessings of salvation that have their source in the Father are now stored up in the Son. But if those are never delivered to us, they don't profit us at all. So that if He had remained dead, 
Those blessings would never have made their way to us. They would be like the treasure at the bottom of the ocean that profits absolutely no one. But the good news of the Gospel is that Christ is indeed risen. And as the risen Lord, He is able to apply, to confer, to bestow those blessings upon us so that it can be said of Him as we read in John 1, verse 16, and of His fullness have all we received. Colossians 1, verse 19 was, it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And now John 1, verse 16 is that of His fullness have we all received. So He, he was filled up with blessings, as it were. They were all stored in Him. And now because He's risen, He is able to fill us. He's able to give us those blessings. So that the point is that Christ's resurrection secures the effect that His death was meant to have. Just like that merchant coming back to his hometown secures the effect that his travels and his trading were intended to have. And now we understand the point the Catechism is making when at the beginning of explaining the prophet of Christ's resurrection, it says, by His resurrection, He has overcome death that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He has purchased for us by His death. It says the risen Lord that He gives us these blessings. But now for the astute listener, that raises a question. Well, what about the saints in the Old Testament then? We've just made the point that it's as the risen Savior, the one that's, who's overcome death, that He is now able to bestow, to confer these blessings of salvation. Well, how then did the saints in the Old Testament receive blessings before Christ was not only raised from the dead, but even crucified? That's a good question. Because understand, the saints in the Old Testament received the blessings of salvation from our Mediator, Jesus Christ, no less than we do. But how? What's, what explains this? And the explanation lies in the certainty of God's eternal decree. For in eternity, God decreed that His Son would be born of a woman, He would die on the cross, and that He would be raised again on the third day. And now when Jehovah God, that is, the sovereign, unchanging one, decrees something, that decree is certain. It's, it's going to happen the way that God intended it to happen. And because God so decreed it, there was already in the Old Testament a certain efficacy, a certain virtue to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that the blessings could be given out in advance, as it were. So that explains how the blessings could be given in the Old Testament. But now, even as we make a point of saying that explains the Old Testament, we must not take this too far the other direction. And in any way undermine the necessity of Christ's 
real incarnation, death, and resurrection. That is, we must never so emphasize the decree and the certainty of it that we begin to leave the impression that while Christ's saving work was really nothing more than the rubber stamp of approval on what God decreed in eternity, that's going too far. For you see, the only reason Christ could give those blessings already in the Old Testament was because He would in fact come, be born of a woman, die on the cross, and rise again on the third day. And so in the end, the point that we have been making stands firm. That it's by His resurrection that Christ is now able to make us partakers of what He purchased by His death. But what are those blessings? Thus far, we have spoken very generally about the profit of Christ's resurrection. And now we need to become more specific by identifying the particular blessings that are mentioned here in question and answer 45. And perhaps you even noticed that, that as I read the first part, by His resurrection, He overcame death, that He might make us partakers of that... And now I've been saying blessing the whole time, but the language of the catechism is righteousness. The righteousness which He had purchased for us by His death. And that's really the first particular blessing. By speaking of blessings, I was speaking broadly, and now we come to the specifics. What does He give us? You can put them under two categories. Righteousness, and then the life that follows from that. First, our Savior gives us righteousness. As we just read, righteousness that is the basis for our justification. And He does that as our risen Savior. And Scripture itself makes the connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our justification. It does that, for example, in Romans 4, verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. He was raised again, there's the resurrection, for our justification. These two are linked together. And the idea is that as the risen Savior, He is able to confer, to apply His righteousness to us. Which righteousness we receive by faith. And which righteousness serves as the the legal basis for our justification for God to declare to us that we are righteous in Jesus Christ. And in that connection, that means the resurrection is really the proof that our sins have been paid for. That there is indeed forgiveness. For if Christ forgot to pay for one, if there was some small remnant of our sins still attached to Him, maybe that one sinful thought that arose during our minds, in our minds during this very worship service, take that one sin as an example. 
if Christ did not pay for that, God would not allow him to come forth from the grave. Because as we explained earlier, where there is sin, there is death. The wages of sin is death. And if there's any death still on Jesus Christ, still attached to Him in some way, He is not allowed to rise again from the dead. But now the very fact that He is risen is therefore the proof that they are all paid. There's not one of them left. And child of God, do you see what good news this is? This means that when you are troubled by your sin, when you have doubts about whether God really has paid, or whether Christ really has paid the entire debt, then you go back to those evidences of the resurrection and you say, The tomb is empty. There's the grave close. There's the angel announcing He's risen. There's Christ appearing to His disciples. He emerged. And because He emerged, that means that's the guarantee, that's the infallible proof and evidence. He paid for every last one of them. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And there is forgiveness in Him. Because He is our risen Savior who is able to give to us His righteousness to make us partakers of that righteousness that He purchased for us. That first of all is the particular, the specific blessing that's mentioned here in Lord's Day 17, righteousness. And the second is life. And that's what follows in the rest of question answer 45. Secondly, we are also by His power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. He gives us life. And we're given that life because we're given His righteousness. You see, those two things are linked together. And Scripture itself makes that link, that connection. For example, in Romans 5, we see this. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. There's a connection between being righteous and having life. Same thing in verse 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. We've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that brings with it the gift of eternal life. And that life is applied to us both physically and spiritually. That is, we're given new life in our souls and we're given new life in our bodies. And that's the the secondly and the lastly in question and answer 45. First, there's spiritual life. That's the middle of Lord's Day 17. 
Secondly, we are also by His power raised up to a new life. New life here is our regeneration. It's the truth that we who were dead sinners have been made alive again. And the way that the Lord's Day puts it is significant that we've been raised up to new life. And it puts it that way because our regeneration is nothing less than our spiritual resurrection from the dead. And Scripture itself speaks of it that way. In Revelation 20, verse 6, we read about the first resurrection and the second. And what are these two? Well, the first is the resurrection of our souls. The fact that we're given new life in that spiritual part of us that is our soul. And now the key is that this life comes from Christ. Because the language here is we are also by His power raised up to new life. That is, Christ the risen Lord gives us His own life. That is, He takes His resurrection life and He he implants it. He infuses it into our hearts so that we who were dead are made alive again. We're given new life. And what a wonder that is. We were dead. No life in us at all. And now we have the very life of Christ in us. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. It's a profound blessing. And shall we not now live accordingly? Shall we not now live out of that new life? Saying no to sin? And striving to heed God's Word as it comes to us. That's the response to this blessing of being given life to our soul's spiritual life. But now not only are we given spiritual life, new life in our souls, but we're also given new life in our bodies. And that's the the last part of question answer 45. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. It speaks of our blessed resurrection. It's talking about when Christ comes again. And the truth that He will do for our physical bodies what He did for His own. That is, He, that is, he will raise them up. Make them alive again and reunite our soul that had gone to heaven with our body. And that body will be changed. It will be transformed. It will be glorified. It will be made like unto His own resurrection body. That's the blessed resurrection that's mentioned here. And the Catechism teaches us that the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection because He is our head and we are members of His body. And because our head has been raised, we therefore therefore shall also be 
raised. And it's in light of this hope that we can then go back to Psalm 16 and make that confession our own. It applies first primarily to Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy of Him. But because we are in Jesus Christ, because we are united to Jesus Christ, Psalm 16 verse 10 becomes our confession too. So that the child of God says with Jesus Christ, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. What a beautiful confession that is. Because we will die one day. Unless Christ comes again very, very soon, every one of us will have an end to this earthly life that involves the painful separation of body and soul. Soul going immediately to heaven, but the body going to the grave. And one family in the congregation in particular was reminded of that this past week. As we stood around the grave of a loved one and watched that casket get lower down into the ground. A reminder of the reality of death. A reminder that our bodies will indeed go to the grave. And unlike Jesus Christ, they will be permitted to see corruption. They will be left there for a time longer than three days. But our hope, our confidence is that they will not be left there indefinitely. They will not be left there for all eternity. For our Savior will come again to raise them so that our confession is what we're going to sing in Psalter number 28 that I know that I shall not be left forgotten in the grave. That is, when Christ comes again, He's not going to forget the location of where my body was buried so that He remembers everybody else's, but He, he can't find mine and it's just left there. That's not going to happen. It's not the case that he, he, He's going to leave some behind. That He, he gets most of them, but uh, I don't really need all of it. Not the case. Because He will come for every last one of His own. And our bodies will be raised, made like unto His glorious body. And we will live with Him, both body and soul. And we will enjoy the blessings of eternal life, even as they're expressed in Psalm 16, verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In Thy presence is fullness of joy. At Thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's what awaits us. And we can be confident that we will enjoy such life. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Father in heaven, we thank Thee for our Savior. And we praise Thee for the wonder of the resurrection and for the profit that it has for us and the hope that it gives to us. Apply this Word unto our hearts. Make us unafraid of death. Comfort us in the death of loved ones. And fill our hearts with a longing for life with Thee in the new heavens and the new earth. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.